Thank you, Pastor. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 32, and we'll be continuing our series, our mini-series. Um, this is going to be the second part and final part in our uh, two-week series, and the topic of uh, Exodus 32 is ownership. And so that's our theme uh, for last week. We talked about uh, ownership determines obedience. And so what or who owns me is going to determine or influence how I act and how I live. And so if, if sin is our owner, then we're going to be obedient to sin. But if God is our owner, then we should be in obedience and reverence and influence of, of him. So we looked at Exodus 32, and we saw that the people of Israel uh, have been freed by God from the Egyptians. And so that's in uh, near chapter 14 in Exodus, that the people are freed and uh, and God sends them to the promised land. So they're working their way through the promised land, and they stop at Mount Sinai. And the reason they stop at Mount Sinai is to receive the commandments of God and how they are to live. And they begin to take an oath or a covenant with God. And they say, God, uh, because of who you are and your righteousness, your holiness, we, uh, we affirm that, and we are going to be faithful to you. But only uh, short, uh, a short time period after, some four months after they left Egypt, uh, we come to chapter 32, and they are instantly ready to defile God and to despise Him and replace God with a man-made image. I think Romans 1, 21 through 25 is extremely relevant here, and I'd like to read it uh, for us. It says, For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, Their thinking became nonsense, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over to the craving of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were denigrated among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served something created instead of the Creator, who is praised forever. Amen. See, Romans, uh, Romans 1 almost acts as a commentary on what the people of Israel were doing at that time. That they, they defiled God, they removed God from their sight. And instead of seeing God clearly, they put an idol and, and demonstrated their ownership to that, to that idol. In doing so, they did a number of things. They first, they disassociated themselves from the faith of Moses. Moses was their leader, their example. And instead of following in the faith and and continuing and drawing closer to God, in in verse 1 of 32, they decided to remove themselves from that faith and say, we would rather worship something we've made, something created, rather than the creator, as Romans 1 said. Not only did they disassociate themselves from the faith of Moses, but they sought to replace Moses. Moses, as they claim, was the one who brought them out of Israel, and they were ready to, to make and create a calf and worship that and claim that that brought them out of Israel. They also enforced their desire upon Aaron to make a God rather than worship the God. They also broke the first two commandments uh, to which they swore they would never break. And finally, they broke covenant with God to whom they, they, they said they were to be faithful to. In response to this sin, we looked at the following verses, which, 
we saw an immediate punishment, but also a purification of the people of God. In the verses uh, that follow their sin, we see that uh, Moses came down from the mountain, recognized that the people were in great sin before God, and so he took the calf, the golden calf that they had made, and he ground it up to a dust and put it in the river, and he forced the people to drink it, to drink the, their own image that they made, that created the man-made image they were now drinking and consuming themselves. But not only that, but, but Moses offered, uh, through the Lord's wisdom, a purification for the people. And while tough as it is to, to, to think about what happened, Moses commands all those who are committed to the Lord to come near him. And so the Levites came to Moses, and he said, Strap your sword and go through the camp and kill those closest to you that defile God. And so in that moment, the, the, the Levites went through the camp and they killed some 3,000 people. We say, how could God offer such an execution of his own people? And I think our explanation of this is, is, is that we see God's holiness at work. It's because of God's holiness that he purified his people, that some 3,000 men died on that day. We say, well, what about the love of God here? Where does that imply? And I think my, myself and others would say, where's the love of God? The love of God is that, yes, while 3,000 people died, think of all the rest of them that were spared. God, just a few moments earlier in his conversation with Moses, was ready to, to remove all of Israel. But Moses said, God, think about your faithfulness to your people. Think about your faithfulness to forefathers. Think about what the Egyptians would say. And so God relented. And so God's holiness is at work, and though he's purifying his people from the very beginning and say, these people need to be focused and direct their attention towards me. But God's love is also sparing them from total disaster, total annihilation. And so God is he's grooming, he's purifying his people. But it goes on. So Moses, as we look today, we're beginning to realize that we have uh, uh, yes, we're, we're turning back to Exodus 32, but we're going to look at God's response to Israel's sin. We saw Moses, his response, which was an immediate punishment to grind the calf into uh, dust and make the people drink it, but also uh, the purification of the people, which was uh, to have the men go through the camp and kill those who were not fully committed to God. But today we step back and we look at God's response to their sin. And I think for us today, uh, in, this, in this second part, we too uh, need to ask ourselves, what is God's response to the sin in the world today? Particularly in, even in America. The things that have been happening in the Supreme Court the last few weeks, what is God's response to sin? And not only what is God's response to sin, but what is our responsibility in the midst of, of a world that seems to be growing in sin? What is our responsibility as Roaring Brook Baptist Church? And I think Exodus 32 helps point us in the right direction uh, in, in God's responses. And I'd like to read just verses. Our, our focus today is going to be on verses 30 through 35. I'd like to read that for us. And I'm reading out of the Holman Christian Standard. If you have another version, please follow along the best you can. Exodus 32, verse 30. It says, The following day Moses said to the people, You have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps... I will be able to atone for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. 
Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, I will erase whoever has sinned against me from my book. Now, go and lead the people to the place I told you about. See, my angel will go before you. But on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. And the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Looking back to verse 30, there are a few things that that might catch our attention. The first is, is the note that it says the following day. And it's recognizing that there is just the slightest split within the narrative. That the events of the day before were that the people commanded Aaron to make a calf out of gold. And, um, and he did. He, he readily accepted the rings and made a calf. Uh, and they began to worship that. And then Moses came back and saw the people, their sin having, uh, having, it having grieved the Lord and their sin committing the, uh, against the first two commandments. And so Moses repaid them with an instant punishment and also purification. But that note that the following day gives almost a, a little breather in the narrative. That all the people of Moses are able to step back and review the sin that they had committed and the consequences of that sin. It's almost as though, as, um, the, the, as though the first day when everybody wakes up from a, a natural disaster. And they look around, they see all the, the danger that a, a hurricane or a flood had done. And they look at all the devastation. And the question on their mind is, where do we go from here? What do we do next? And that little break in the narrative is, is the people of Israel saying, what do we do now? And Moses has an answer for that. Moses turns to the Lord and says, uh, he, he turns and says, you have committed a grave sin. Now I have to go to the Lord to see and make atonement. There's an interesting point here. When Moses, in verse 31, he returns, uh, he, who does he say has committed the sin? Does he say, I have committed a sin or we have committed the sin? In verse 30, who committed the sin? He says, you have committed the sin. And literally it reads like this. He says, you, you all have committed a sin, a grave sin. So there's two things that he's illuminating there. He's, he's recognizing who committed the sin, that it was the people of Israel, that he is, is separate from the sin. If we remember, he was on the mountain, uh, the Mount Sinai, when the people were committing the sin. Um, and he's also clarifying uh, the, the severity of the sin. And he says, a grave sin, or some might have a great sin in your translation. And so he's uh, illuminating the fact that not only is he exempt from the sin that was committed, but he's also exempt from, from the, the severity of the sin. That the, the Israelites broke the first two commandments uh, in their worship of, of this golden image. So his response is, is, since you have sinned such a grave sin against the Lord, such a serious sin you have done before the Lord, I must go before the Lord and perhaps I can make an atonement. You see, Moses again is going up to Mount Sinai to make atonement for the sin of the people. One might ask, drinking uh, if, if drinking the, the powdered calf and the purification of the people wasn't enough, now Moses has to go and account for their own sin. And so he says, perhaps I will go and make atonement. Uh, Moses is, is demonstrating a sacrificial mindset. That Moses is the leader 
and almost as though he is a priest and a king for the people. Since the people have sinned against the Lord and it is entirely on their shoulders, they are to blame. Moses is ready to step in. And he is ready to go before the Lord and knowing that the people of Israel have sinned, Moses is willing to approach the Lord and, and seek to, uh, forgiveness on his own behalf. Moses, again, as he comes before the Lord, he makes note that it's their sin, and he doesn't say, it's my sin. So Moses is recognizing that God has every right to destroy the entire people of Israel, as he mentioned some verses earlier, and starting out only with Moses. But Moses is still willing to intercede for the people of Israel and approach God. Moses is almost a correlation of Jesus Christ here. We read in 1 Timothy 3.5, it says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity. And that mediator is Jesus Christ himself. We go on to read in verse 31, it says, So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. In 32, Now if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. You see, when Moses says, only forgive their sin, uh, Moses is asking God to lift, to carry their sin, even after the immediate punishment, which is the grinding of the calf, and the, and the purification, Moses does not have the power to forgive the people's sin. You see, I, I think many people in this area are convinced that if, uh, if they punish themselves for their own sin, or if they... they uh, they go through a purification if they keep themselves from sin, that that will save them. And I don't know how many people that I've, that I've talked to then say, well, I'm, I'm good enough to get to heaven. Or if I don't sin for such and such a period, then God will let me in, into the pearly gates. And it's almost as though they have a mentality that, uh, of, of a sinless salvation. If only I sin less, then God will save me. But I would say that's a contradiction to Scripture. Because it's not even for, the, for, for us here today. It's not the, the fact of us sinning less, but of us uh, reminding who Christ was and what he has done for us. Moses goes on to say, but if not, erase me. So he's giving God a cause and effect. If, uh, if you don't forgive the people of Israel then erase me from the book you have written. That book you have written, I think uh, uh, Malachi 3.16 gives us a note of what that book looks like. I'd like to read that for us. It says, At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared Yahweh and had high regard for his name. They will be mine says the Lord of hosts, a special possession on that day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son, those who serve him. See, Moses says, if you don't forgive them, I am willing to have you erase my name from that book, from the book of those who fear the Lord. Moses is implying that, uh, that his eternity might be at stake so that God's people might survive. This is what the Lord replies in verse 33. He says, I will erase whoever has sinned 
against me from my book. Verse 30 makes it clear of who, uh, who was the offenser, who offended God in their sin. It was the people of Israel and not Moses. So Moses says, if, if you don't forgive them, erase me from that book. But God says, I will only erase those who have sinned. That's the people of Israel and Aaron, not Moses or even Joshua. Verse 34 is the response. Now go, lead the people to the place that I have told you about. My angel will go before you. But on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. As we read, on on the day I settle my accounts, some of your versions say, uh, I shall visit or even I will punish them. The meaning is a little bit disputed here, but there is a punishment in mind. And the thing to note here is that the punishment of the people of Israel, it is postponed. Punishment is postponed. So notice that regardless of the, the, the mediatory works of Moses, that Moses was stepping in before God as a mediator for the people. Moses said, yes, I know these people have sinned. Yes, they need forgiveness. But please write me out of the book if they cannot receive forgiveness. If you are still angered with them, take me out, but leave your people. Even though Moses was acting as a mediator, there was one thing he couldn't, uh, he couldn't mediate before God. He couldn't offer forgiveness for the people. You see, Moses could offer the immediate punishment, the, the drinking of the calf. He could offer the purification of the people, the, the, the execution of 3,000 for the, for the holiness of God to, be, uh, to illuminate, but he couldn't offer forgiveness. Moses, before the people of God, he served as a prophet, as a priest, and as a king. But he could not act as a savior for them. You see, as the people began to look at Moses and see the role of Moses between before God and before them, they could see that Moses was their leader, that he was responsible, that Moses had faith, that he was a mediator before God. But while he was a mediator before God, that Moses represented the people, he was not their savior. And so if Exodus 32 reminds us of, of anything here, it's that Moses was just a man. But in order for them to receive pure uh, forgiveness before God, before a holy and righteous God, they needed a savior to forgive them of that sin. Verse 35, we see the the conclusion, yes, God postponed the punishment, but God did give a response. And the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Again, we see another punishment for sin. And if there's anything that should be, should be you know, sticking out to us in this passage, anything that we can you know, turn our eyes towards, it's the seriousness of sin before a righteous and holy God. That in no way did God take this sin very lightly, nor did Moses, upon the people breaking the first two commandments and, and, and taking their eyes off of God and instead putting it towards a, a man-made object and offering worship, a praise of that object. Just like in Romans, it talked about uh, worshiping a created item, man-made versus the creator, the sovereign God. These people were willing to do that. And so this passage illuminates the idea that sin is serious. And God's grace is sufficient. 
So we need to take sin seriously. If there are two responsibilities of the believer today, the first would be take sin seriously, and primarily that of idolatry. And idolatry in our world today, it's, it's that which replaces God, that which replaces the need, uh, the, the person, the being, the thought of God in society. And it doesn't take us but, but a few seconds for things to come to mind. That would be idolatry in the world today, not even within the Christian circle. Things like atheism seeks to remove God uh, from, from the world, from the universe, from thought. Things like evolution removes God uh, from, from the very existence of the universe, removes God's creative hand in the beginning of the world. But idolatry is not just uh, what replaces God, but it's uh, the thought of God, but the need of God. And so if you don't have God at the beginning of the universe, then why on earth would you need God to save you from sin? And so idolatry has great implications. If we were to give one aspect of sin, what is sin? Sin is that which separates us from God. Sin is that which separates us from God. So for us as believers, we can ask and we can sit back and say, is there idolatry in my life? Is, is something coming before God and separating me from God? And what does that look like for you? Where do you spend the most amount of your time? You see, the, the reason why sin is, is so serious in the Old Testament helps give an aspect in Exodus 20, verses 5 through 6. Another point on why sin must be taken seriously. Exodus 5, 20, verse 5 and 6, he says, You must not bow down to them, he's talking about false gods, or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children of your father's sin to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, God being a jealous God wants the focus, wants the attention of his people. Not that he can, he can command them to do certain things, but that he can love them and that they can grow in grace. So sin is not just what separates from us from God, but it removes us from the, the jealous love and the affection of a good and glorious God. Not only does it separate us from the, the jealous and, and heart of God, but sin is also slavery. John 8, 32 through 36 helps illuminate this thought. The Jews come and they question Jesus about uh, their inheritance and, and um, their ancestry. And Jesus says this. He says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They reply, we are descendants of Abraham, they answered. And get this. They say, we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say we have become free? Did they, did they tell the truth there? We have never been enslaved to anyone, the Jews said. No. Well, they obviously haven't read the book of Exodus or even uh, Genesis. But this is Jesus' response. He says, I assure you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does. He remains forever. Therefore, if the son has set you free, you really will be free, or you will be free 
indeed. You see, sin is slavery. Sin is slavery. God is jealous. Sin also separates us from God. So what does a serious view of sin look like? First, let's ask, what does a a serious view of sin not look like? So how about this? Uh, uh, what sin, a serious view of sin is not, it's, it's not taking sin lightly, as some of our liberal brothers and sisters have done. Sin becomes that which is comfortable, tolerable, and welcome in the church. You see, the, the sin of the world is the same as the sin in the church, and so why address sin? Why talk about sin? That's a liberal view of sin. Nor is sin taking sin seriously, a legalistic view, where sin becomes uh, an anathema or a curse, uh, an abomination, a hatred of people who sin. And their mentality is, unless you give up your sin, I will not love you. So we see the two extremes. We see a, a, a liberal view of sin, which is all sin is welcome, it's tolerable, it's acceptable, And we see a legalistic where if you sin, then you are cursed by God. And you should be hated. But taking sin seriously is this. If we were to take sin seriously, then we acknowledge our sin in contrast. In in contrast to the nature of God. You see, God is good. He's loving. He's holy. He's just. And sin is everything but that. If sin is that which separates us from God, then if God is holy and just, then we are are wretched, despised. So we recognize, we acknowledge that sin is in contrast to God. Not just our sin as believers, but the sin of the world. It's in contradiction to the very nature, the being of God. And that begins to help us to, to take sin more serious. But not only do we acknowledge the sin in contrast of God, but we begin to repent of that sin, knowing that it separates us from God. If you know that something is separating you before another people, before another person, your instant reaction is to, is to just run away. But in reality, in order to draw close to that person, you need to make things right. The same is with our relationship with God. If sin is that which is, is pushing us away from God, if it's if it's disbelief, if it's rebellion towards God, then the first thing we need to do is is fall on our knees and say, God, please forgive me of my sin. And so it's not just, to take sin seriously is to acknowledge that sin is in contrast to who God is, but it's all repenting and drawing closer to God, knowing that our sin separates us from God. But the third way we can uh, take sin seriously is to submit to God. And to draw near to him. Because God is the owner and offers us liberty. And, and so we can run from possession and slavery of sin. And so if we, are acknowledging, if we are acknowledging our sin in contrast to God. And we are repenting of our sin in light of who God is. And drawing close to God. Then we begin to submit and to love God. Not out of obligation. But out of desire. Because God owns us, and he's drawing us closer 
to him. So that's our first responsibility, is taking sin seriously if we're seeking to live in in God's ownership. But also the second is to grow in grace. If you were to read a few passages past Exodus 32, you come to Exodus 34, and it talks about the very nature of God in relationship to his people and to Moses. Exodus 34, 6 through 7, it says, Then God passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, God, slow to anger and rich in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequence of the father's wrongdoing on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Beginning to demonstrate the character and nature of God in light of a rebellious and stiff-necked people. We also see this same uh, thought come through in, in 2 Corinthians 12, 6 through 10. It says, For I want to boast, I would not be a fool, because I will be telling the truth. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, But I will spare you, so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I will not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to torment me, so that I will not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times to take it away from me. But he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Paul, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weakness, insults, catastrophes, persecutions, and its pressures. Because of Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, the second responsibility of a Christian is not just to take sin seriously, but it's to grow in God's grace. You see, God's Grace is a rescue for us from, dep- uh, from our deprived being. Grace does not make you a better person. It helps you recognize that Christ was the best person to rescue you from sin. You say, for me, well, I want to, I want to grow in grace this week. Can you? Can you really? No. You can grow in your recognition of God's grace to you and what he has done for you on the cross and what he's continuing to do In and through you. It's God's goodness in exchange for our weakness. You say, but I'm not I'm not strong enough to grow in grace. You don't have to be. Because it's God's grace that strengthens you. It's God's grace that is illuminating uh, what his 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 work and his action that he's done for you. And so continue in that grace. Grace Grace takes our current status as sinners and changes that to saints. Grace is God's perfect work in place of my rebellious heart. It's God's work in us. So how to grow in grace. We talked about how to take sin seriously. Here are three applications to grow in grace. The first, acknowledge your inability to earn God's love. We say, if I only only do this today, then God will love me more. If I only act a certain way, then God's, God's love will pour over me. No. I have no ability to earn more love from God. 
But it's, it's looking back on what God has already done for me. We read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The love of God was this, that he gave his Son for us. So that we look back and say, this is the greatest example of love. So we live in that. Not only do we acknowledge our inability to earn God's love, but we acknowledge God's work on our behalf. You say, this isn't me acting, but it's Christ living through me. I can't earn my salvation, but Christ has earned it for me. So I trust in that. So not only do we acknowledge our inability, not only do we acknowledge God's work on our behalf, but we embrace God's constant work in the midst of our present weakness. Each and every day we can sit back and realize, what is God doing for me today? What is God's work, uh, work today in light of my weakness? What is his strength in light of my failure, in, in light of my incompleteness? This is his perfect work, his grace continuing to carry me through instead of my trying to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. You see, as a church, we need to take sin seriously, but also to grow in grace. People not, are not attracted to a church because of their stance on sin. Nobody says, hey, I'd like you to start attending Roaring Brook Baptist Church because they, they just hate sin. You know, they're passionate against sin and, and God's wrath and anger towards sin. No. But the body, body of Christ should stand firm on what sin is, God's stance on sin, His holiness, His righteousness, but demonstrate the grace, the love, the faithfulness of God to believers and unbelievers. It's His grace. So today, yes, while we want to take a, a, a firm stance on sin in our culture, we also want to grow in the grace of God and the love He has for us. So the responsibility of the Christian is twofold. To take sin seriously, but also to grow in God's grace. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads before You and recognize that it is nothing we could do to earn Your salvation. No matter the type of punishment or purification, the people of Israel were not able to gain their own forgiveness, but could only look forward to the forgiveness of Christ and His blood shed on Calvary to forgive them of their sin. And Father, help us to recognize too that we fall short of our own salvation. That there is nothing we can do to gain your attention, to gain your forgiveness. But it is only through the forgiveness of Christ and his work on the cross that we can be saved. God, as we live in a sinful world and the world will continue to grow in sin, help us to take sin seriously, to stand firm that, and, and acknowledge that sin is slavery. That sin separates us from God. But recognize that you are a jealous God who seeks his people, who longs for his people. So in response to your jealousy, help us to grow 
in grace, acknowledging what you have done on our behalf, that you have died and rose again victoriously from the grave, defeating death and sin, so that we, the body of Christ, can grow in grace in response to you. So God, make our hearts to submit and draw near to you, and you will draw near to us. Amen. Grace to you.